It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much to all of you for joining in. Uh, I hope we'll have an interesting time this uh, session. Um, I have a few different subjects I was going to speak about, and we'll see kind of how it goes. But I did want to, in a way, finish up from last week where I sort of felt that I didn't completely um, cover uh, everything that I wanted to on the subject of the... Um, elections in Israel, which will take place exactly a week from today. So um, I wanted just to uh, repeat again the tremendous amount of skill that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has in Israel for having achieved some tremendous political victories even before the elections took place. So... um, he really is an ultimate politician, and um, the uh, the the uh, he he had, of course, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to repeat myself, but to say that in Israel, every government is a coalition government, and the last coalition government, he actually broke the opposition apart and uh, joined up with Mr. Gantz, who had an equal number of seats with himself. And the deal that he made with Mr. Gantz was that they would form a kind of a three-year government whereby uh, for the first 18 months, Netanyahu would be prime minister and the second 18 months that Mr. Gantz would be prime minister. Um, And so this is called a rotation. And this has happened in Israel before uh, where, um, you know, it's difficult to make a government without power sharing. Of course, Mr. Netanyahu um, never intended to give up power, and he held on to it because one of the conditions in his agreement was that Mr. Netanyahu would stay, the the rotation uh, agreement would only take place if a budget was passed. And of course, you need a budget to be passed in order to run a government. But Mr. Netanyahu said to himself, you know, I can run a government without a budget. And so a budget was never passed. And therefore, of course, the agreement to rotate uh, leadership was never put in place. So that was his one one of his brilliant achievements. Um, The uh, other two uh, achievements uh, were that um, because coalition politics requires uh, sort of helping political parties, it's a delicate dance or a delicate game whereby you need to have allies who are not too strong where they could kind of make demands on you and yet not too weak so that if they're too weak, they don't get elected altogether and all the votes that they get uh, are wasted. So remember there's a three and a quarter percent limit. Uh, If you don't achieve the three and a quarter percent, then you don't get elected and all your votes go into the garbage can. You can't give them to someone else. So the idea is with this dance is you have to play just the right enough game 
to make uh, your allies get elected, but for them to be not too strong that they can make you know, unrealistic demands on yourself. So he achieved the union of two political parties in Israel, uh, the Jewish Home Party, which represented, represents kind of orthodox nationalistic Jews who are not ultra-orthodox on the one hand. And then you've got the Jewish Power Party, which is a kind of a racist anti-Arab party. Um, and each of these parties, had they run on their own, probably would not have achieved the three to three and a quarter percent limit. And he got them to join up and run as a team. So running as a team, they are now polling that they would be getting over the four seat limit, which would mean either four or five seats. So this is one major achievement. Um, now, the, the Jewish power party is so objectionable that to most voters and to, even to other right-wing politicians that no one would have uh, anything to do with them. Their founder was this Meir Kahana, the, the, um, the uh, sort of Jewish power uh, leader from New York who moved to Israel, got himself elected once and was barred from uh, ever running again because of his policy of uh, all Arabs should be kicked out of Israel. So um, uh, that's the party who is now running together with the uh, Jewish Home Party, which is a kind of a a uh, very late successor to the original Mizrahi party, um, uh, the moderate uh, religious nationalist party. So that's his one achievement, that's one achievement. Netanyahu's second achievement, and for perhaps an even bigger one, was that he broke up the joint list of Arab parties. Uh, there were four Arab parties who in the last election ran as a team and got 15 seats. So 15 seats is a huge number. It was in actual fact, the third place party after Likud and the Blue and White Party. And it, it, it represents a, a historic high for the Arab political parties that they've ever achieved in the Israeli parliament. So 15 out of 120 is, is a good number. Now this coalition of four Arab parties consisted of one, uh, the Hadash party, which is the kind of, we'll call it um, a binational Jewish, uh, Arab Jewish communist party. It's 95% Arab maybe and 5% Jewish, but they always put in one Jewish candidate in, in an elect, a winnable position. And the leader of that party is Mr. Ode, who um, is the leader of the joint list as a whole and an extremely um, uh, personable and uh, telegenic and uh, friendly voice, we'll call it, from the Arab side. And he was so successful in, in projecting this moderation that his party actually got 20,000 Jewish voters to vote for it in the last election, which represented uh, close to half, uh, the equivalent of half a seat or half a member. So that's one group. The second group in that, in that coalition is the Balad Party, which is an, uh, an Arab, nation, Palestinian, nationalistic, secularistic, uh, left-wing party. The most objectionable one from the sort of Zionist point of view in that coalition, because uh, some of its members 
uh, are denied the right of the state of Israel uh, to exist more or less. They participated in that, that famous Mavi Mar Marmara um, uh, attempt to break the boycott in Gaza by a Turkish ship. Uh, they're always in the headlines for some kind of an anti-Zionist uh, uh, move, um, but strongly feminist party, lots of women are running on that list, uh, very intellectual, um, and it's kind of the, the, the heart and soul of the Palestinian element of the Israeli Arabs in, in Israel. The third one on the list uh, is the Tao party, uh, led by Mr. Tibi, Ahmed Tibi, who is perhaps the most famous Israeli politician after Mr. Oda, Israeli Arab politician after Mr. Oda. And this party is a less nationalistic party, more traditionalistic party, uh, more conservative party, um, and uh, kind of a straight up um, Palestinian rights party without being uh, aggressive on that score. And uh, Mr. Tibi is an excellent Hebrew speaker and very often on Israeli television. So those are the three. The fourth one is the Ram party. Now this is a party which is Islamic in its orientation. It's uh, con conservative socially, anti-gay, uh, anti, um, you know, uh, socially very conservative, you know, anti-abortion, anti-gay, anti, um, uh, uh, you know, couples living together uh, in favor of the large families, a very strong support among the Israeli Bedouin population, which is a very socially conservative group. And that was the fourth element. So in this election, the last one, Ram, uh, led by Mr. Abbas, broke away from the joint list kind of on the promise of Mr. Netanyahu that, you know, if he did, if they did that, Mr. Netanyahu would take his opinions into consideration. And the leader of the Ram party is one who says, you know, it's a, the Israeli Arabs have, have kind of taken the Palestinian cause to its very end and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. So let's forget about Palestinian nationalism. Let's just look for rights for ourselves, um, you know, rights to, for education, rights for um, uh, urban development, uh, rights for technical training for our people, um, you know, rights to have access to public sector jobs. And let's look after ourselves and let's not, you know, worry too much about the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And um, for this reason, Mr. Netanyahu was a sort of attracted to this, this notion. And he, he, and he kind of, in a way, I won't say he persuaded Ram to break away from the joint list, but you know he certainly was pushing on that front. So uh, to break up this Arab sort of block uh, was a major achievement, and it'll be especially a big achievement if Ram doesn't get elected. In other words, if their if their votes don't pass the um, the uh, the three and a quarter percent limit, then all of those votes go in the garbage can, and all of those would be anti Netanyahu uh, votes in the main. One of the themes, though, of this election is that Mr. Netanyahu finally woke up to the presence of Israeli Arabs uh, in the country, who form, of course, 21% of the population. And he's, got, he's put up posters in Arab villages and towns to vote for the Likud. He, for the very first time, placed a Muslim 
uh, Arab uh, on the list of the Likud candidates. They used to have, they did have Druze uh, candidates before, but the Druze people are not, um, are, are very fiercely loyal Zionists and are not, uh, uh, don't consider themselves to be Arabs. Um, and so uh, the, the idea of having Arabs join the mainstream of Israeli politics, uh, which was starting to be pushed in the last election by the Meretz party is now in a way almost become mainstream. And Mr. Lieberman's party has Arab candidate, the Labour party has Arab candidate, the Meretz party of course has uh, several Arab candidates on it. And now even the Likud party has them. So only the ultra-right nationalist parties and the, of course, religious orthodox parties don't have them. In fact, of course, the religious orthodox parties don't have women on their list. So, uh, you know, you know, before putting an Arab on the list, they, they have to get, get with the women, uh, the women uh, part. But all, overall, just to finish up then, the, the sort of two blocks, the pro Netanyahu block and the anti-Netanyahu block are more or less equal in the polls. And uh, it's very likely, therefore, that um, there won't be the formation of a, um, of a, of a, a very strong uh, government in this election. And, uh, you know, uh, the president, Mr. Rivlin, said, you know, uh, this week he said that the Israeli people are getting fed up with the system. And they're starting to not believe in democracy because all they get are temporary, unstable uh, governments um, formed by, uh, you know, uh, formed by uh, promises which never are kept. And uh, certainly Mr. Netanyahu's credibility has gone down to nothing when it comes to making promises to coalition partners. So we'll wait and see what happens with that uh, next Tuesday. So it's the 23rd of March. So that's the end of that segment. We'll just leave that aside. Um, I wanted to uh, speak about something completely different now. I wanted to actually read an article that I was so impressed with that I'm going to read it to you. And it, the subject is a kind of subject of what, what's called cancel culture. And cancel culture means that um, for various reasons, uh, people decide to boycott or to cancel out or to sort of not listen to um, people's opinions based on what they have said. And it seems to be something, of course, you might have heard that the Republican Party is very strongly against cancel culture. But uh, I'm going to just read this article to you and, um, you know, it won't take long and then we'll see what you think about it. Okay, so here we go. A Georgetown Law School professor. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. It's the most prestigious law school in the U.S., maybe after Harvard Law. Uh, a Georgetown Law professor has been terminated after comments she made about a lot of her, quote, lower, unquote, students being Black, after those comments went viral and sparked a firestorm of backlash on social media. In a recording of the video call, the adjunct professor, Sandra Sellers, is speaking to a fellow adjunct about students' evaluations and performance. Quote, and you, know, and you know what? I hate to say this, but I end up having this angst every semester that a lot of my lower ones are Blacks. Happens every semester, Sellers said. And it's like, oh, come on. You get some really good ones, but then there's also some that are just plain at the bottom. It drives me crazy. 
unquote. Bill Trainer, the dean of the law school, said in a statement Thursday that he was appalled that two members of our faculty engaged in a conversation that included reprehensible statements concerning the evaluation of black students, unquote. Trainer said that he gave both professors the opportunity to provide additional context and then informed Sellers that he was terminating her relationship with the law school effective immediately. During our conversation, she told me that she had intended to resign. Trainer added, Trainer added, as a result of my decision, Professor Sellers is no longer affiliated with Georgetown Law. The Dean said that other adjunct professor on call, David Batten, has been placed on administrative leave pending an investigation by the school's, quote, Office of Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action. Until the completion of the investigation, Batson will not have any further involvement with the course in which the incident arose, according to training. The Georgetown Law Center Black Student Association condemned the incident in the statement, quote, not only is this situation revealing of sellers' true beliefs about Black students, it is also illustrative of, illustrative of the conscious and unconscious bias systematically pre present in law school grading at Georgetown Law and in law school classrooms nationwide, unquote. The difference is that Sellers was caught and her racism was broadcast for the world to see. In a resignation obtained by ABC News, Sellers said she was deeply sorry for her hurtful and misdirected remarks. While the video in this incident is an excerpt from a longer conversation about class participation patterns, not overall grades, it doesn't diminish the insensitivity I have demonstrated, she wrote. I would never do anything to intentionally hurt my students or Georgetown Law, and I wish I could take back my words. Regardless of my intent, I have done irreparable harm, and I'm truly sorry for this, Sellers added. For this reason, I'm immediately and voluntarily resigning my position as an adjunct professor. She reflected on her nearly 20 years teaching at Georgetown saying that when her students do not excel in courses she teaches, it reflects shortcomings on my part, not just on the part of any single student. My comments were the inarticulate reflection of long soul searching. I must do better to understand and address these issues, Sellers continued. I am committed to doing this for myself and always looking for ways that I can combat racism in the Georgetown community. That's the end of the article. Now, I was really very disturbed to read that um, that uh, letter, be, uh, uh, for, for and the article for what it said. Now I don't know, of course, more about the background of this particular professor, but she taught there for twenty years, and she didn't. She didn't. Um, uh, you know, if you if you read what the letter said, what she said is that among the students who do poorly, blacks are overrepresented in this group. Or in other words, that there are always blacks represented in uh, the students who do less well in my class. Now, to my looking at this, this is a kind of a statistical statement. It's not a condemning statement. It's not saying that, um, you know, blacks are inherently, uh, incapable, and why should they be in Georgetown Law School in the first place? Uh, what she's saying is, is that there seems to be a pattern of Blacks not doing as well in her classes uh, as other students. So if you just looked at the marks, 
uh, you know, of, of different groups. Uh, not all, she says, of course, not all, but some blacks don't do that well. So that's in essence what she said. And for that, she gets fired. And worse of getting fired, she is kind of made to give a mea culpa to, to sort of confess her sins. And for those of you who are familiar with um, um, uh, Stalinism and reading Solzhenitsyn's books about this, it's like, you know, before these people were executed, they had to show up and confess all their sins and point out even other people who think like them. And, uh, you know, and then they were brought to the gallows or, or put in, in you know, in, in the gulag. It's, to my thinking, it gives me such a hard sort of bad taste that people have to spill out their guts to say something to be sort of super politically correct. Um, if you think about the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution in the 1950s, pretty well the same thing happened. They brought people to sort of confess their sins, uh, you know, in front of all their colleagues, and then they were sent off to the farms first, quote, re-education. Um, and and um, the, 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 to me, there's a, such an element of hypocrisy in this because um, it seems as if you can't open the uh, sort of media today without having sort of what we would say are underprivileged groups like say blacks and Hispanics being pointed out as a group in, uh, you know, not have, in having sort of uh, higher rates of COVID um, in, um, you know, in, in discussions about poverty, uh, in, uh, et cetera. So in other words, that, that the United States and, and many countries have decided that they want to segmentalize or compartmentalize their populations and, and blacks certainly, and Asians, and, and, and indigenous people, and Hispanics uh, were singled out, for example, by the Democratic Party in, in trying to reach them as a subgroup of voters. Um, and yet when a professor wants to compartmentalize them and look at uh, sort of uh, their achievements in school compared to other students, this is considered racism, and, um, and and she's made to quit her job after teaching there for twenty years. I mean, this is not this is not a uh, you know a, a kind of a twenty year old assistant prof who uh, you you know who still has has her mind up in uh, in the sky kind of thing. So uh, this, to my way of looking at things, is a an example of what the right wing in the United States would call cancel culture. This person was canceled for beliefs, or not beliefs, but for stating facts which, which some people may have found inconvenient. And um, uh, to me, um, this is a very bad, uh, a very bad uh, trend, um, which seems to be at its worst in the university settings. People sort of set standards of what correct speech should be, and anyone who deviates from that, you know, risks losing their job. And, and this person actually did lose their job. So um, it, it means, in a way, that in universities they only allow one opinion. They don't. Know, there's intolerance for opposing views. There are hearts, you know, harsh decisions based on on, on sort of sins that are, are, are you know not that grievous. Um, an oversimplification of complex issues. 
And then people will be, because of this, people are afraid to come out and express their opinions. And teachers uh, are only allowed to, you know, teach safe presentations. And students don't learn what opposing views could be or, uh, you know, opposing ideas because everyone is afraid to be ostracized, you know, or fired from their job or boycotted or, or you know, losing their professional um, uh, their professional um, qualifications and things like that. So I think um, that uh, it's something that uh, should be carefully looked at. President Obama warned against it. He said, you know, even good people have flaws and make mistakes. And, um, you know, the, the, the sort of cancel culture was jumped on by pre ex-President Trump, uh, you know, who boycotted all kinds of media and all kinds of things for, for you know, what he, uh, what he didn't like. And there was a letter published in Harper's Magazine called the Harper's Letter where 153 uh, very well-known people uh, wrote a letter um, to counter, uh, to protest this sort of trend of, 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 of homogenization of thought. And uh, some of the people who, who wrote this um, uh, you saw that you know editors were being fired, books were being canceled, professors were being investigated for quoting the works of literature in class, um, and uh, you know for narrowing the boundaries of what's acceptable. So some of the people who signed this letter uh, saying you know that justice and freedom can coexist. In other words, you can have the freedom of speech, uh, and 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 at the same time, of course, you can have. Um, um, you know, you, you can have statements on what's right and the two don't conflict. So among other people, uh, Fareed Zakaria, David Frum, Malcolm Gladwell, J.K. Rowling, Michael Ignatieff, Susanna Heschel, David Brooks, Margaret Atwood, Winton Marsalis, all these people signed this letter. Anyway, it's a, it's a uh, kind of a, um, you know, a kind of a... Uh, an issue because we do know that there are serious consequences, you know, uh, and, and, you know, people have been canceled on, on different sides. So, you know, this, this Colin Kaepernick, the famous uh, football player who knelt, uh, was never hired again, who knelt at a Black Lives Matter, um, uh, you know, in sympathy with them. And, um, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's an issue. Um, the, um, you know, another issue uh, related to this, and I'm not going to get into too, too much, is um, should the um, social media, uh, the Googles, uh, you know, Amazon, Twitter, um, Facebook, should they be somehow controlled by the government over the content that they produce? Or should they ha get the responsibility to control themselves? Uh, you know, for example, Twitter banned Trump, uh, uh, off its pages and Facebook did too for lying and for manipulating and for, for um, incitement. And the question is, these companies are so powerful, should they themselves have the whole sole right to judge what's acceptable and what's not? Or should they be subject to government who then can kind of control them? Way back when, there was something called the Fairness, uh, Fairness uh, Act, when at the beginning of TV, um, there were only three different you know, networks in the US. 
So the government said, you know, you, you have to present all, all sides of a certain point fairly um, and in order to, uh, you know, educate the people that are watching TV. And all that went by the board. And now, you know, of course, we have uh, Fox News and, and, you know, even more radical uh, groups and, and MSNBC on the left, Fox News on the right, uh, Newsmax on the right, where they don't represent both sides of a, uh, uh, you know, of a story. So, you know, this is a question of uh, the fairness doctrine. Should it be brought back? You know, should, should, should the media be allowed to be so one-sided because people who follow only their side end up living in their own world. And these are the same people who end up, for example, not wanting to get vaccinated and then the rest of society is affected. Or these are the people who think they can invade the capital in the United States and think that they're doing the right thing. So, uh, you know, how do you keep freedom of speech and freedom of opinions on the one hand, and at the other hand, a block uh, dangerous, um, dangerous speech on the internet, uh, you know, in Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a subject that is not finished being talked about. And, you know, we'll have to have a look at it again uh, and see uh, kind of, uh, you know, how do you get the QAnons out of the public space on the one hand, um, you know, and, prov and provide for freedom of speech on the other. So that's, uh, you know, something to think about. Uh, maybe at the end we'll talk about that if you have any comments or questions about that. Um, uh, so let's leave that aside. Let me just look at my time here. Okay. So um, a long time ago, uh, I was there was a request for me to speak about the Indigenous, and it sort of fits in a bit to the subject that we were just speaking about in Canada anyway. And about the indigenous people in Canada. And, and the reason I thought about speaking about it today was for two reasons. One is that in the United States, um, this Deb Howland was just uh, confirmed yesterday as a Secretary of Interior in the United States. And the Secretary of the Interior is the person who is responsible for relations between the US government and all of the uh, native tribes, Indian tribes, who will call them, in the United States, they call them natives, they still call them Indians, they, they don't uh, call them First Nations or Indigenous as we do. So that's one thing she's responsible for. And she's also responsible for all public, all federally owned public lands, like all the national parks um, and other public lands uh, as to how they should be used. And, um, you know, she was opposed by most of the Republicans because she said there should not be oil drilling or fracking for gas on public land. So all the oil industry and gas industry sort of uh, voted against her, but she got accepted by 70 out of 100 votes. So that's that's pretty good. So this is, marks the very first time that a Native American uh, person became a um, uh, such a powerful um, uh, position in the administration, like a cabinet secretary. By the way, there was once a Native American vice president, but that we're going back uh, quite a while back. The other reason is that in Canada, we just had the decision, I think it was yesterday, that said that um, uh, although um, Natives have the right to um, fish for a moderate income, uh, the government decided they don't have the right to fish out of season. And uh, this, of course, marks a huge debate and a huge, um, a huge uh, 
difference of opinion between the indigenous people in the Maritimes and the Canadian government. But the Canadian government does have overall responsibility to maintain safety. They have overall uh, responsibility to maintain uh, the uh, quality uh, or the quantity of the fish stocks in the ocean. And so they're saying that for both these reasons, uh, we don't want the natives in Nova Scotia to have a rights to fish at a time when the non-natives uh, can't and that has led to boat burnings and, and mini riots and, and violence in on the docks in Nova Scotia. So they wanted to solve that problem in one way, but it's not really solved. This is this, by the way, this dispute goes back to about 1750. So we're talking now 270 years of fighting over this particular issue. So with that in mind. Let's just have a quick uh, background look at um, the uh, Indigenous people in Canada, who they are, um, where they came from, what the, what the state, what their state uh, is today, what their problems are and their history, and just a little bit about that. Um, uh, certainly, uh, the, um, the Indigenous people in Canada are in the news these days uh, because of COVID, for example. Uh, a decision was taken to provide COVID vaccines to all um, natives living on reserve, regardless of age. Uh, so this is kind of, we'll say, a differentiation of the population between natives and non-native people. This differentiation is something which has always been in law in Canada since 1876. It also exists in the United States, by the way. And, um, you know, we, in the previous subject, we were talking about uh, segmentation of the population. And certainly when it comes to, and only when it comes to um, native people, is this segmentation or differentiation written into the law. So there's no law that says in the United States that blacks have these rights or that's rights, or in Canada, the same thing. But there are laws that saying that the native people do have rights that other people don't have. So this is something important to know, because this goes back to the foundation of each country and the treaties that were signed between uh, the United States on the one hand, or, or Great Britain and the Crown on the other hand, and the native population. So. Um, um, the, uh, it's, it's certainly known that the native populations of North America and South America arrived um, somewhere around 20,000 years ago from Asia. Now, this is very remarkable because what it means is that before 20,000 years ago, there were no humans living in North or South America. Uh, and if you think of it, of course, uh, you know, Homo sapiens and ancestors of Homo sapiens lived, uh, you know, up to 4 million years ago in Africa and in Asia. Uh, and so, you know, until practically yesterday, in this entire huge territory of North and South America, there were no people living here. Um, the Ice Age, uh, there were several of them. 
from 50,000 years ago, the older one, to 17,000 years ago, the most young one, um, the, the, the ice age froze the oceans and uh, a land bridge was created uh, between Siberia and Alaska, where you could walk easily from Siberia to Alaska, and then you'd end up being, of course, in North America. Now, this is a route that we know that um, the first inhabitants uh, used. Another route that we presume, but we're not sure about, is that they came by boat, by kayak, uh, along following the coastline, again, from Asia, uh, uh, along the coast of um, uh, Alaska, and then going down the coast uh, into, uh, you know, British Columbia and Oregon and Washington. The problem with that theory is that after the ice melted, the water rose a lot and covered over all uh, remains of settlement by um, these native people along the coast because there was no more coast. The, the ocean rose so much that, um, you know, all of their villages or artifacts were buried in, uh, under the ocean. There are people who are looking for them now, by the way, and I'm finding some in Washington state and Oregon, uh, but it's not easy because all this is underwater exploration. But certainly we do have remains of we have remains of natives in Alaska and in the Yukon uh, because for some reason um, uh, there are parts of Alaska and the Yukon that never froze over and therefore the natives could have um, uh, lived there, you know, uh, on the edge of the uh, ice fields and uh, then sort of spread their way all the way down and relatively quickly to the, even almost the bottom of South America. So it didn't take more than a couple of thousand years before natives, you know, went from Alaska to Chile. And, you know, some of the earlier finds uh, of human habitation in North and South America were found actually in South America. So uh, once the people got moving, they did get moving pretty quick. Um, is there, what is so remarkable is that considering that this is only 20,000 years ago, the uh, native people of Canada and US and South America speak vastly different and unrelated languages. So the question is, did they come in separate groups speaking each their own language or did they all come together and the differentiation of language happened in North and South America? Of course, nobody knows for sure. But what we do know is that a very small group in Siberia was found, a population of two, 300 people only, who speak a very closely related language to the Dene language in um, uh, the Dene language in the Northwest Territories. And uh, interesting to know that the Dene language of the Northwest Territories is very closely related to the Navajo language in Arizona, but um, which is the largest, uh, by the way, the largest, uh, the largest indigenous language in the United States is Navajo. Uh, but the land in between Northwest Territories and Arizona, all kinds of other native people settled who are not speaking that language. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting, but unfortunately an unrecorded uh, written history because there was no written history. So this is all, all oral. So the, the people who lived in North and South America did not have any written language at all.
and uh, you know they were very artistic and very inventive, um, um, and there was some sort of writing down of there was in the Mayan case uh, a writing down of languages, but it was not in a not in a um, a version that um, that people could easily follow. In other words, it was more like the pictographs uh, or or sort of a bit of hieroglyphics. But even that was just the case in one or two cultures. Um, so uh, what did they live off of? Of course, uh, uh, because of the ice age, there were huge animals around, mammoths, musk oxes, caribous. Um, uh, the, uh, they hunted these big animals, a sable-toothed tiger, and it is thought there's one one certainly very believable idea that it was the arrival of humans that caused the extinction of these huge mammals in uh, North America because they just uh, were such efficient hunters that they hunted the last ones down. Um, humans' uh, remains were found in Nova Scotia 11,000 years ago. So, I mean, think of it, it didn't take long for people to spread out. Um, now, as far as Canada is concerned, we'll talk about Canada for now. Um, although there are hundreds of subgroups of, uh, of Indigenous people, they could be really divided into several main groups. Um, and these groups are, are distinguished by uh, the um, territory they lived in, the languages that they spoke. Uh, and of course, the territory they lived in determined what, you know, what they did for a living. So you have coastal BC and Alaska, those groups, including the Kwakiutl and Simshian. Um, and these people were, you know, were about the best off of all the natives in North America because they had the salmon to, uh, uh, they had a rich environment to, that they lived in. They had beautiful, phenomenal forests uh, and wood that they could make, uh, uh, you know, those totem poles out of and then boats out of uh, and um, fishing for salmon, which was so plentiful, uh, as well as other sea mammals, seals and, um, and, and shellfish like oysters. And they lived a very wealthy and rich life before the arrival of the white people. Then you had groups of people who lived in the interior of uh, BC second group of people, also dependent on the salmon who ran up the rivers there, Fraser River. And then once you crossed over the Rocky Mountains, you have the Plains Indians, uh, the Sioux and Dakota people, the Blackfeet people, the Chippewa people, and the Cree, um, uh, who lived uh, all in the Great Plains and who hunted the buffaloes, the bisons. And then you had uh, uh, natives who lived around the Great Lakes, Ojibwe, Cree, Hurons, and Iroquois, uh, who lived in Ontario and Quebec. And these people were partly agricultural people, partly hunters of small game, uh, traders, um, uh, very skilled boat people, uh, you know, who had canoes and who traveled huge distances. And in the Maritimes, you have the Mi'kmaq people uh, who uh, depended again on the, um, on the ocean for their uh, living, uh, fishing, um, and gathering shellfish along the coasts. And uh, those are, the, in other words, the main different groups of people, of native people who live in Canada. 
And of course, since there was no border between US and Canada, this sort of division could pass down quite far into the US um, with the same sort of divisions of people, uh, you know, except for once you get down into far southern states in Texas and in California, you have you had different groups of people, um, you know, who lived uh, in those territories. So those are the main, the main, uh, the main, um, the, the main sort of divisions in Canada. Um, and then, uh, uh, not counting those, and in, uh, in a completely different subgroup are the Inuit, who came much, much later to um, uh, to uh, Canada, Alaska, and Northern Canada. And the Inuits um, uh, uh, were uh, people who just hunted and fished. They had no agriculture whatsoever, obviously. And they're the only people in human history, in humankind, who never had any native alcohol drink because there's nothing to make alcohol out of since, you know, if it doesn't grow, you can't make alcohol out of it. You can't. You know, you make alcohol out of seafood. So uh, they never had their own alcohol source until the Europeans arrived. And, uh, you know, in all societies, that's the only one that I can know who, who are like that. Um, the important crops that were grown by the uh, Native people in Eastern Canada, of course, were the famous tree of bean, squash, and corn. And bean, squash, and corn... Um, are something that uh, sustained uh, settlements and were taught were given over to the Europeans when they when they arrived. Um, certainly in in South America, the the natives used all kinds of wild um, wild plants uh, like tobacco and uh, papayas and uh, uh, different kinds of melons and um, uh, what else? Uh, uh, cocoa uh, to uh, you know to give to to trade with the uh, Europeans once they arrived. So they uh, and tomatoes and potatoes. Uh, these were things that were grown uh, in uh, the southern um, you know parts of Central America and uh, Central and South America, and you know they they form part of the world diet now, and it's so. Hard to think, for example, of Ireland and potatoes, how closely they're related, and yet potatoes, you know, were unknown until the Spanish brought them in the 1500s. Uh, tomatoes, which are such a big part of Italian cuisine, unknown until the Spanish brought them in the 1500s. So it's uh, quite amazing to think of the contribution of uh, uh, North and South American natives to to world, uh, you know, to world culture. Um, there was contact between the natives and the Europeans first in the, around the year 1000 when the Norsemen came to Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, but it seems as if these people um, uh, were defeated by the natives and uh, left the shores of Labrador and Newfoundland and never came back. In the 1500s, of course, the French and British arrived. Uh, they started uh, trading fur, uh, which was a very valuable commodity in Europe, fur for hats, especially. And, um, you know, they gave cloths and they gave liquor and they gave tools uh, in exchange. But the most important thing they gave was diseases. And um, 
I was reading some history of uh, New England uh, settlements of natives and how entire villages and large towns were completely and 100% obliterated uh, by smallpox and uh, other diseases brought by the Europeans. And um, that, uh, you know, if for some reason, for example, there was a, a member of a certain tribe who was traveling uh, and didn't get to contact the, the Europeans. And when he came back to his village, like in five years, he looked, he, he couldn't believe that there was ever a village there. Everything was completely 100% destroyed. So uh, this, um, the, these diseases took a tremendous toll and killed more than half of the people, uh, the natives in Eastern part of North America, what, you know, after contact was made in, in those centuries. Uh, it's also said that once, once the British realized that this was actually uh, uh, happening, that they used their, their diseases as a tool to defeat the Indians so they could, you know, take their land. And, you know, they presented them with blankets filled with smallpox. You know, whether this is true or not, we really, I don't think we really know, but it's certainly a story that is circulating. Um, the uh, amount of trade that was going on in North America was enormous, uh, even before the arrival of the Europeans. And we know this because of all kinds of valuable um, artifacts, like sh fancy shells and fancy pieces of metal that are found you know, thousands of miles away from where they came from, where they originated from. In other words, you could have shells that were, were only found on the South Carolina coast and they find them in Iroquois um, you know, collections, et cetera. So there was a huge amount of trade going on. Um, when the uh, Europeans arrived, uh, the native people, um, you know, said to themselves, you know, you know, they had to assess the situation quite quickly and realize that they were not in a winning position after, you know, several uh, battles in which, um, you know, each side won and where they were sort of evenly matched. Eventually, the firepower of the, um, the British and the French with guns uh, could outshoot any kind of... Um, you know, bows and arrows and spears that the, uh, that the uh, Indians had. And at that point, um, the uh, Indian population began to look at the Europeans as, as ally, potential allies against their own um, opponents. And so, for example, the Hurons in Quebec uh, allied with the French and the Iroquois in, in New York uh, allied with the British because the Hurons and the uh, Iroquois were fighting each other for a long time. And so they each took Europeans as allies. And of course, whoever won, won, and whoever lost, lost, let's put it like that. Yeah, certainly in the War of Independence of the United States, there were, um, there were uh, Indians who, uh, you know, indigenous, uh, you know, excuse my use of that term, it's hard to switch from one to another. But uh, they allied with the British, some allied with the British, some allied with the Americans, and, uh, you know, so it went. An important factor, uh, you know, for the French is the bringing of the Roman Catholic faith to uh, all the people that they uh, came in contact with. And so uh, this faith was then passed on 
uh, and the beliefs, uh, native beliefs were erased or downplayed uh, because of this uh, new Christianization idea. The British uh, sort of in their own way also introduced Protestantism to the uh, natives that they came in contact with, but it wasn't a huge, uh, you know, priority for them. Um, needless to say, the languages that were introduced by the Europeans, whether it was Spanish uh, in the South or French in Quebec or, or, or you know, English out elsewhere, were adopted by the um, native populations for, for trading purposes. And uh, later on, of course, uh, the, um, the these powers tried to uh, make the natives forget their own original languages. And, um, and uh, this was a process that was carried out over uh, 150 years to the point where I'll get to the statistics later where that very, very few of the native languages are healthy. Uh, uh, you know, a few are alive, but very few are healthy, let's put it like that. Um, starting in the mid 1800s, this residential school system was introduced whereby children were removed from their homes and sent away to residential schools whose purpose was to quote, civilize these people, teach them a trade, and uh, in a way, um, deculturalize them. Uh, uh, you know, they got punished for speaking their native language. They were forced to dress in Western clothes and they were trying to be quote, civilized and, you know, taken away from their roots. Uh, in those days, it was considered a sort of favor that was being done to these people. Uh, but nowadays, of course, we see that this was a, a radically um, negative uh, uh, transformation, that this transformation, these schools lasted until 1996. Of course, in many cases, these students were sexually abused and physically abused by the, uh, by the staff. And they were all run by churches. So they were run by either the Catholic Church or various Protestant sects. And um, this uh, sort of separated the, the students from their families. It separated them from their cultures. Uh, you know, they didn't become westernized, but they, they, they lost their um, native, native uh, culture. And, um, you know, many people point to this as the reason for the uh, relative lack of social progress in the native population today. So in other words, just as to go back to what I was saying before, just as the, the, the 400 years of slavery uh, in the United States, or well, not 400, but say 250 years of slavery plus 100 years of discrimination led the black Americans to an, a, a lower uh, social position and lower economic achievement, the residential school system and the exploitation of natives in general uh, are, are used as explanations for the today's lack of um, economic and social success in the Canadian indigenous population. Um, the, uh, so uh, we spoke a bit about languages. So today there's only three, um, three um, Canadian uh, native languages which are sort of solid. Uh, those would be Nictitut, uh, Cree, um, and Ojibwe. And um, the other languages, of which there are multiple, 
have, you know, could be hundreds of speakers, it could be dozens of speakers, uh, you know, and, you know, every year a couple of them go extinct. Uh, there are today in Canada 100,000 Cree speakers. So, uh, you know, if you know in Quebec, uh, northern Quebec, the Cree territories uh, are self-governing. They have their own school system. Everything is taught in Cree. The Cree alphabet is, was developed by, um, by missionaries and is now in use in northern Quebec. Um, and the Crees also spill over into Ontario. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, many, many of uh, uh, these Cree people, uh, in a way, because contact was so late, in other words, they weren't living in Toronto or in uh, Montreal, because they were living in northern Alberta, northern, um, well, yeah, northern, could be northern Alberta also, but in northern Manitoba, northern Ontario, northern Quebec, around Hudson Bay, that um, you know they were able to be isolated enough to get over the hump of the um, contact and the diseases and the desolation, and uh, then uh, you know when they demanded their rights, they were given their rights in Quebec certainly, and the Cree population in Quebec are among the most healthy, the most successful um, uh, native population in Canada. Um, the, uh, and in Nuktatuk, uh, the same thing, they just were, you know, the territory in Northern Canada was just so hostile to Europeans that no one ever bothered settling there. So, um, that's why the, the Inuit were able to develop on their own for so long. And now, uh, they are the majority population in Nunavut. And so they are able to, um, to, uh, teach their language and preserve their language because of their political power in Nunavut. Um, but of course, they're also uh, in, in New, Inuit in Quebec, where they have also uh, sort of some, some semi-autonomy and their own schools and in Labrador also, and in the Yukon uh, also. Um, in 1876, there was the Indian Act that was passed. And the, what the Indian Act did was it, regularized the status of Indians in Canada. It established reserves uh, where uh, the, um, the people living there would have sort of self-government under the British crown. One important distinction that the Indian Act did was it said that the Indians were not subject to provincial law, but to federal law. Uh, it also, of course, uh, forbade uh, you know, native people from moving from one reserve to another. It isolated them on the reserves. Um, it um, restricted membership uh, of, of the reserves. And they were, they were sort of like ghettos in a certain sense. Um, they had no real rights outside the reserves. So in other words, they weren't allowed to vote because they lived on reserves. Um, they weren't allowed alcohol because alcohol was so uh, potent and powerful. Uh, a destructive element in their society. And, um, you know, the reserves in Canada were much, much, much smaller than the reserves in the United States physically. Uh, so it was a kind of a way that the government saw of bottling up the natives and sort of throwing away the key and not worrying about them. And uh, today, uh, like I said, because these reserves are so small, 
most um, most indigenous people in Canada don't live on a reserve. Uh, the reserves did have the right sort of right of self-government in the sense that uh, there was no taxation applied to income earned on the reserve. And uh, those rights have translated into, um, you know, the, the native people selling uh, uh, cigarettes and, uh, you know, other, other taxed items uh, that are, um, you, know, you know, they're selling them to non-natives and that's one of the ways they're making a living. In the U.S., um, similarly, the reserves are known as gambling, um, gambling places in Canada, too. Uh, because of the laws of taxation not applying on the reserves, they could build casinos. And um, in the U.S. especially, these casinos are the main living for many, many of the, uh, many of the native uh, people there. So um, uh, then uh, there were uh, other treaties that were signed. Uh, and um, uh, 1982. Two, I think there was another one which updated all those old ones. Um, and um, there are differences of opinions on how these treaties are to be interpreted. So the main difference is in a sense is that the, the native people claim that they are completely sovereign people, certainly on their reserves and even off of the reserves. In other words, that since the treaties were originally signed between the British Crown and the uh, and the natives as nations, uh, these were like equal treaties between two equals, and therefore the 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 um, therefore the natives of Canada have a kind of a sovereignty uh, uh, equal to the Canadian government, meaning that the Canadian government can't do anything to the natives without the natives approving. Uh, and that's how this idea of sovereignty is how the, uh, the natives see themselves, both, by the way, in the U.S. and in Canada, some more than others. Some uh, don't consider themselves to be Canadian citizens at all. Um, the, especially the Iroquois nation have issued their own passports and they try to travel around the world on an Iroquois passport. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, in the United States, it's not quite the same thing. Uh, the uh, by and large, again, except for the uh, Mohawk uh, Iroquois Confederacy, uh, most all of the um, uh, indigenous people in the US are proud to be American citizens. They certainly serve in the military as they do in Canada because the military is a kind of a, a, a way uh, out forward for uh, people who are not educated uh, who want to learn a trade, who want to get out of their uh, living conditions, sometimes squalid living conditions. And uh, both Canada and the U.S. have a very long history of, of um, Native people serving in the military. Um, so how many, uh, what, what are the numbers? I'm just checking my watch. Oh, you know what, we're getting close to time. 5% of Canadian Canada are Indigenous, including Métis. Um, the highest province is Manitoba with 18%. The lowest province is Quebec with 2%. Nunavut is 86%. Um, and the Northwest Territories is 50%. Um, there are um, around a million 
uh, we would call them Indians in Canada, uh, 700,000 Métis. Métis are kind of a mixture of whites and Indians uh, from way back when, and 65,000 Inuit. Um, Winnipeg is a city with the most uh, native population, 12%. Montreal is 1%. Toronto is 1%. And Prince Albert, Saskatchewan has, is 40%. So about 56% of them live in, in cities and they're among the fastest growing populations in Canada. But because they're poor, there's housing problems, education problems, alcohol problems, drug use problems, petty crime problems. They're overrepresented by far in the prison systems of Manitoba and Saskatchewan. And their situation is so poor in Canada that UNESCO, the United States, uh, sorry, the United Nations Agency has downgraded Canada because of the poor living conditions of, uh, of our um, native population. Uh, the native population, their solution is, you know, give us the money and let us do whatever we want with it. And the Canadian government says, no, uh, you know, uh, we... Um, we don't want to give you money because we want to make sure it's spent properly and not sort of shuffled off to, uh, you know, to relatives and friends of the chiefs. And um, the very famous story of uh, Prime Minister Harper, who, who gave $240 million to a very small native band uh, of around a thousand people. So it was equal to almost a quarter of a million dollars a person. And when word came out, they were still living in shacks. Uh, he sent an auditor up there to see what happened to all the money. And when the auditor got there, his plane was turned around, uh, you know, at gunpoint. And he, he was told to get out of here because it's not your business how we spend our money. Lastly, I just want to go over a couple of the, the main issues of today uh, in Canada. So we have the pipeline in British Columbia, which is uh, the, what, the former Kinder Morgan pipeline, which passes through native territory. Most natives gave approval to it, but some didn't. And these natives who didn't say, well, we are sovereign, so we have the right not to allow passage on our territory. So that's one big issue. The next big issue, of course, is the fishing issue in Nova Scotia that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, the uh, constitution said that the natives have a right to fish for a moderate living. And the uh, natives interpret that as to being fishing wherever they want and however they want and whenever they want. And the uh, non-native fishermen said, well, you know, if all of the natives are fishing out of season for lobster, there won't be any lobsters left. So there was a big confrontation on the docks in Nova Scotia over that particular issue. Um, then there's the issue, um, uh, there's a constant issue among the, um, the Mohawk population who, who are the most, in a way, politicized and the most militant. And they have blocked the railway line between Montreal and Toronto because it passes through native territory. Uh, we had the Oka crisis in 1970, the blockade of the Mercy Bridge. Um, and uh, uh, the Mohawk people are remarkable in that they've been in contact with the Europeans so long and yet they've managed to keep their own identities uh, strongly, make a good living, and uh, you know even revive their uh, language, which has practically died out. And they now have Mohawk schools uh, where they teach it, teach it as a second language, and they have even a Mohawk immersion school. Um, so uh, 
Let me just see here if there's anything. Oh, yes, of course, the, the case in Quebec uh, of the discrimination against the Atikmat Adamaku uh, native from uh, Manwan, from uh, from the uh, you know territory in central Quebec, who was uh, who was discriminated against in, in the hospital in Joliet, and who died in you know very degrading sort of condition. And the government said they'd look into it, and uh, this uh, you know this uh, this kind of thing. Um, in Ontario, every spring, and we'll see it this spring also. There's flooding on the uh, James Bay and Hudson's Bay in the native communities whose communities were built in the, the most kind of ridiculous locations that flood every wind, every spring. Their water, uh, their water and their sewerage uh, are, are somehow linked together and um, they have to be evacuated every spring to go live in Sudbury or Sault Ste. Marie because their settlements are being flooded over. So uh, somehow or other, you know, there's finger pointing as who's to blame. Ontario says it's not us. The federal government said it's not. It's Ontario. The native population said it's both of you. And, uh, you know, this is a, an occurring, a recurring story. Um, so, um, yeah, the 1982 Constitution did solidify and recognize the position of natives and Métis uh, as having special rights in Canada. And, you know, all the, all the discussions that we have up until now follow from that. So I think I'm going to check my watch here. Yeah, I'm going to stop now. If you have comments or questions about any of the three subjects I spoke about, uh, sort of Israel, the cancel culture, or Canadian uh, natives, uh, ask away. I just wish my friend Howard would be here because he always had questions. I don't know where he disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, I also would like to point out that, you know, I speak about the natives kind of in one voice, but obviously there are political divisions uh, within each group. Uh, certainly the issue of um, whose boss is uh, quite a strong issue. Um, some uh, run their bands in a sort of democratic fashion. And some run their bands on a kind of an inherited uh, chieftainship situation. And uh, in many cases, the leaders of these groups uh, have full authority over the reserve. They decide who gets to live where. They can hand out money uh, to individuals uh, from block grants that the group gets. And, um, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of civil strife within these various communities. Other ones, um, you know, in the case of Cree in Quebec, Chief Billy Diamond, uh, I think he was given the Order of Quebec for being such a, a good leader. And, uh, you know, he's well thought of even today, long after his uh, sort of uh, presidency was over. I don't see any questions, Mr. Dwaskin. So would you like to leave us on uh, at the end of a lecture with a note? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back again a bit. Uh, and I do this all the time, you know, to COVID and, and the urge to get vaccinated. And, the and you know, finally, we're seeing progress uh, very quickly in Canada. Uh, I think the last figures are about 7% have gotten at least one shot. 
and the importance of getting yourself vaccinated can't be overstated. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, that the native populations, the reason that they were chosen was not because of sort of favoritism or constitution, but because they live in such crowded, isolated conditions that if um, one person gets it, it's so easily transferred to the whole rest of the village. Uh, and, um, you know, just as in the pre-colonial days, they could all be wiped out so completely. Uh, it's such a vulnerable population, um, you know, not only because of the overcrowding, but because of poor health and diabetes and, 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 and obesity and, and, you know, other problems. They have comorbidities. And so it was a good decision to make sure you know, that they get vaccinated, uh, you know, as fast as the people living in nursing homes who are the, the, the you know, the other vulnerable group. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening. Please um, don't be afraid to, uh, you know, express your opinions or ask a question because it's always useful for me to, to kind of know uh, what people are thinking about. And it's my pleasure to be with you again this week and I'll be there next week. So have a good week and thank you so much everyone. And thank you Angela for moderating. Thank you Mr. Dwaskin and thank you to everyone listening in. Have a good rest of your day and see you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March, 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit CodeStLuke.org. Have a great day.